But the reality is the vast majority of customers will never hold up two shirts next to each other that are printed two different ways and compare them. Alex Saltonstall at Printful, the CEO of Printful. We had a really great conversation and uh, Stephen is like, you know what? Just hit record. <laughs> I feel like the um, one of the most interesting things that came from this is if you step back and you came in as a hired CEO, what are the things, what is the process that you would take to look at the business to know exactly what you need to do for the next 12 months? And Alex gets into that in detail. And that, that for me, I think was a big, uh, point of, yeah, this is interesting. Like the business is a bridge to the customer. The team is how you execute on building that bridge. And then what is the strategy behind that? I'm super, every time I talk to Alex, I'm just like super impressed at, um, at his ability to articulate what Printful's doing and how they're solving problems. And I think it's a testament to the way he operates as a, as a leader and a professional CEO, having experience at Wayfair during COVID, um, trying to get couches to, to people's homes while China's, you know, your main exporter of furniture. Uh, just an awesome, awesome conversation. As, as a lot of you might know, we use Printful quite a bit in our shop. We're going to dive into that today as well. Um, but really great episode. So Bruce, let's get to uh, get to our sponsors. All right, everybody. You know what you got to do. You got to slide open your screen, type in the passcode, scan your face ID, do what you got to do to open the Instagram app. Type in multicraft underscore daddy. Pull up multicraft screen printing and digital supplies because for over 50 years, they've been providing you with top brands at competitive pricing. Not only that, if you send Dave a message on that account... He is going to personally be sending a case of PMI tape to a lucky winner every single week. So that's really cool. And we appreciate uh, Dave and the PMI team for uh, being able to pair up and do that. So thank you guys. Sweet. Um, I was at ISS Long Beach. Incredible show. Um, and I spent some time with Alex from Easy Way. Um, and you shouldn't spend all day cleaning dirty screens. Easyway's line of environmentally conscious chemicals will get the job done faster, more efficiently, and will cost you a fraction of the cost per screen. You can get 701, 842. Those are Campus Inc.'s favorite Easyway chemicals. Um, and if you value a company to help them with how-tos, best practices, Easyway is there. Give them the go. They actually just did a rebrand. Uh, really like their new brand. Um, kind of partnering you know, with like the relationship with Blue Water and... Uh, Pretty cool stuff. They've got a couple things in the pipeline that have been pretty impressive. Thanks so much. Supercolor. Supercolor also had a pretty big setup at uh, Long Beach too. They were printing constantly um, on that rock impress there. Supercolor is the world's best heat transfer made for screen printers by screen printers. They truly understand the pressures and expectations of running a screen printing business. Um, both of the founders were previous shop owners. That's why they pride themselves on being super fast and super easy. They really help you make it and get the job done. Make sure to mention Printavo15 in the coupon code box when you check out, and that gets you 15% off your order. Thanks, Supercolor. We appreciate you guys. Um, and at the show, 
was Graphic Source. Um, if you need a solution to improve efficiency and reduce costs in your art department, uh, Graphic Source offers industry-leading outsource options for truly becoming a part of your team. They plug and play with Printavo and other shop management softwares. And so when it comes to SEPs, mockups, creative art, order management, digitizing, um, even back office and customer service, there's no better company in the game. They have over 30 years of experience and they know and understand shops needs and have a proven track record of, of success. Um, hit them up, graphicsource.com. Use PrintavoPod24 for 50% off your first vector step and embroidery order. We are up to five Graphex um, artists back office team at Campus Inc. So Graphexers, if you're listening to this, we appreciate you. Go sign up for Graphic Source. All right. <laughs> All right. Let's jump on in. All right, Alex. Thanks so much for being able to join us. I know uh, Stephen fed you questions, which we don't do for everybody, um, <laughs> but you did ask. So we've got a lot that we want to go over. First of all, <laughs> I was just telling Stephen, I was just like, wow, Alex's resume is just crazy stacked. I mean, Harvard undergrad, Harvard MBA. I mean, um, you know, Wayfair managing uh, operations, uh, president of this, COO of that. Uh, just an incredible background. Maybe just a little bit of history of how you got to where you're at right now at Printful. Sure. I, I think that's probably a nice way for you to all tell me that I'm older than you. Um, so <laughs> the, the sort of quick backstory is I, um, after sort of getting started in consulting and other things, spent about 10 years in education technology. Um, education, just because it was really, it's an important topic for me, continues to be, and technology, because I've always been intrigued with how technology can sort of unlock new opportunities and make things much better. So I spent a lot of time in that industry and then was ready for a professional change and happened to have an opportunity to get to know the chief operating officer of Wayfair at the time. And they were just starting up a new business within Wayfair. And so they gave me an opportunity to come over to take over something which they had sort of proven an MVP version of, but wanted to scale. And so I moved into a very different uh, business. E-commerce was was new to me. Uh, operations was mostly new to me. But I had five years of Wayfair to sort of figure both of those out and, and to build. But it ended up being quite a big business thanks to a super talented team that I was working with. Um, and it was a great, you know, great experience. And then was just fortunate to find Printful where there was a lot of similarities with what I had done at Wayfair. And so I was confident that I could come over and add some value at Printful, but there was also enough about Printful that was new and different so that it was really exciting for me. So, you know, careers are a series of fortuitous coincidences in a lot of cases. And, and I think mine's been that way. Um, and I'm just, you know, very, uh, feel very lucky for the opportunities I've had. Um, and Alex, when we met, I think we were introduced right when you got hired at Printful. <laughs> and so I think at our first just quick coffee chat, you're like, I don't know the printing industry. Like all this stuff is brand new. Can you talk about <clears throat> the similarities at Wayfair? I mean, maybe even the global footprint that Wayfair has, like how many billions of dollars it does, and maybe the similarities and, and things that you saw that were parallel there? Yeah, sure. So, um, and you're right, we had, we had an early conversation, which was an important one for me in, in the space. But, um, when I think about companies, I tend to start by thinking about customers. And there's a couple interesting parallels between Wayfair's customers and Printful's customers. Um, the first is that 
people express themselves through different things that they buy. Um, apparel is arguably the biggest one, um, but furniture is actually a big one too. And so one of the things about Wayfair's brand and business is we're very conscious, at, we were at Wayfair, of we're allowing people to express who they are through the things that they buy and the things that they generally put in their house. And so one of the things that was very familiar to me when I came to Printful is what we're doing through our production and through all of our partnerships is enabling essentially an endless selection of apparel products that people can use to express who they are. And so that felt very familiar um, and exciting for me because I love that part of, you know, how do you, how do you help actualize for your customer what they want to do? Um, another thing that was really familiar is quality and customer service matter a ton. Matter a ton at, at Wayfair that in terms of how you build that brand, but they certainly do at Printful too. And Printful's always been known for quality. And so that was something that was really familiar to me. Another thing that was really interesting and important in terms of what Printful does and what Wayfair, what I was doing at Wayfair is matching supply and demand. So in a way, the problem we were trying to solve at Wayfair is pretty easy. How do you get somebody a couch in two days or less? that is made on a six month production cycle halfway around the world. That's a hard thing to do, but that was the problem that we were trying to solve. And what it led to was a global supply chain where we were managing, by the time I left, sort of a billion and a half dollars in inventory, managing all the different pieces from original production, which often happened overseas, through the ocean freight, through the uh, warehousing, through the fulfillment, through various carriers. And so I get to Printful and it's the same problem. How do you match supply and demand? The, the beautiful thing is Printful's got a much more elegant solution. By doing a, most of our business on demand, when something orders, somebody orders something, we can produce it right away and get it to them very quickly. God, if I had had a solution like that at Wayfair, it would have fundamentally changed that business. So Wayfair, we invested many billions of dollars in the physical infrastructure of a fulfillment system. And at Printful, we invest a lot of money too, but more of the investment is around quality than is around sort of uh, warehousing. I don't know, Stephen, did that answer your question? That was a lot of words. That was, that was awesome. That was super cool. <laughs> you were there during uh, COVID craziness. COVID. I'm sure there was, you know, a lot of craziness even before that, just scaling a, a physical you know, product company like like Wayfair, uh, along with the e-commerce side and the and the software side. Any, we always like hearing war stories about this stuff. Like what, what can you share behind the scenes? Cause that, you know, so that's such a huge company. I've, I've got to imagine just the scale of what you deal with issues are Alex, massive. You, you missed slinging masks. So you know, <laughs> no, I, I didn't, about, but, but I, I would love to hear the, the yeah, the COVID war stories. Yeah, I mean, if you guys that, that could be a whole podcast itself. I mean, so the, the quick narrative of, of sort of Wayfair's COVID experience through an operational lens, because that was the part of the business that I was operating in is, and this will probably feel familiar to you all and, and your listeners, is it started with this moment of panic of, oh, my God, the business is going away, right? We're going to go from this really big growing business to zero very quickly. And we had sort of, you know, three or four weeks of that. And then it flipped on its head to we have never seen demand like this. And there is no reason to believe it's going to stop anytime soon. And the trick for on our side of the business, like my job at Wayfair through the COVID period was availability. Like my job was basically keep us in stock. And that was a hard job because of the long production cycles and because every country that we sourced from 
was coming up with different solutions of how they were going to deal with COVID. So some shut down right away, zero supply. Others kept going, but then had a COVID outbreak and then shut down. And so we had sort of the ups and downs of where we were getting supply from. And then you layer on top of that, a first priority for us of, one, we need to make sure our team is safe. Two, we need to make sure we're allowed to operate. So then there was the period of time where we were trying to establish whether we were going to be considered a essential service and whether we were going to be allowed to stay open. Fortunately, we were. E-commerce, I think, actually helped uh, us get through, us as a country, get through a really difficult period in a slightly less painful way. And Wayfair was a part of that. But the experience of Wayfair of needing to become a lot more nimble in how we sourced, needing to fundamentally change the way we operated. And keep in mind, by that point, we had about 13 million square feet of warehouse space. Like this is not a small operation. And so being able to pivot a whole bunch of how people worked and how we served our customer well on the fly without a whole lot of guidance or precedent was, you know, it was an interesting process. I mean, even more specifically, though, like you talk about where do we find this stuff now when these countries are closing? Is it literally just, you know, calling up as many manufacturers as you could think of to say, are you open and can you make this? Yes, it it was to a degree. I mean, we, um, you know, we had standards of, of safety and things like that that we couldn't compromise on, shouldn't compromise on. Right. And it's uh, moments of really big disruption are an interesting moment to challenge companies' core principles. And we were pretty quick to reaffirm some core principles. One, safety of our team comes first. Two, uh, we're not going to sell something that we can't vet the way we would normally vet it in a non-COVID period. And so there were plenty of times where we were getting called from factories overseas saying, hey, I can make you as much as you want or whatever you want. And we're like, yeah, I'll, I'll bet you're going to make a lot of compromises that we're not willing to make to do that. And so that limited our options pretty materially. What we were able to do is Wayfair had for most of its time, and this is like a good lesson learned from that whole period, we had always been very supplier friendly. So we had competitors like Amazon who squeezed their suppliers much harder on things like price, were much more demanding in terms of delivering me exactly this and exactly this quantity, taking a whole bunch of risk. Wayfair had been much more supplier friendly. And so it became a little bit of a race of our team picking up the phone and other companies picking up the phone saying, how many desk chairs do you have left? And how many of those can I have? And some suppliers would be proportional. And other suppliers would think about the relationships they'd established over a long term and said, you know what? Wayfair's always been good to us. I will give you all of it. And so other companies went out of stock a lot faster than we did. Interesting. That's, That's crazy. Cool. Very old school. It just happened on the phone. And I'm sure all of our listeners have dealt with some sort of Chinese company with promo products or anything. And it's it's old school. <laughs> it's old school. And in those big moments of disruption, relationships are really, really important. Relationships and trust, right? Because you're moving so fast that you, you there's not much you can fall back on that gives you a reassurance. And relationships is one of those things. Let's let's start talking printful stuff. So um, you know. Printful has been a company that I've been fascinated about. Obviously, I'm a I'm, you know print nerd, love technology, love automation. And as I was growing campusing, I'd always watch it and kind of know that it was going on. Um, during, I think it was three years ago, Printful, Printful was valued at over a billion dollars. They raised $130 million. 
um, one of the fastest growing on-demand platforms. And I always looked at Printful as a competitor. Like, dang it, man, the platform's so cool. Uh, what listeners and my friends in the industry know is Printful is actually one of our biggest solutions at Campusing today. We use, we love Printful. Um, and we've grown a really strong relationship with them. And it's a new muscle for us um, that that we talk about every single day in our company. Um, and I think shops that hear about Printful think, dang, they're the on-demand DTGs and they're just drop shipping and, and this and that. You know, can you talk a little bit about the evolution of Printful, you know, maybe pre-COVID and kind of what you're what you're all looking at now and, and how it got to where it's at? Because it is it is a fascinating organization. Steven, can you actually say like you said you use it too, like even more specifically how you use it? Because I think people will say, oh, well, like for what? What do you like through PL or was it for? Yeah. So we started using Printful primarily for 3PL. Because you can send shirts to Printful without having to individually package them, which I'm still fascinated that you all do that or barcode them. You guys do it yourself, but it makes sense because you ship out shirts every day. So we could we would send our finished apparel that we printed for our clients to Printful shelves, and we weren't even using Printful as a as a as a printer. Um, and then when items went out of stock, we'd be like, ah, we didn't sell a bunch of those. Why don't we just put it on Printful? And we'll make a little bit less than we would, but fine. And then, you know, we started doing a little bit more and a little bit more. And now we have this like beautiful hybrid running where Printful is an extension of Campus Inc. as a 3PL provider, as an on-demand decorator, as an on-demand embroiderer, as an on-demand sublimator, as a promo product shipper. Um, and so, yeah, um, when I guess you use Printful enough, they'll even be in your Slack channel, which we're fortunate about. So <laughs> that's, that's how we've spend. used it. And a lot of people ask, how are you able to do it? We keep a ton. We keep as much as we possibly can in-house, but we don't limit ourselves um, because we, we have Printful as a muscle. So that's that's how Campus Inc. uses it today. Let me, I'll try to do, let me give you the sort of the quick history of how we evolved to where we are today and then maybe pick up on some of those themes, so you know, how we partner with people in different ways because there's lots of different ways to work with Printful. Um, but the history is um, Printful started by enabling uh, entrepreneurs who then built what typically are sort of, were sort of small to medium-sized businesses in the e-commerce space. So Somebody would come to the conclusion of, hey, I've got a great idea. I want to sell apparel online, but I don't really know how to do that. I definitely don't want to produce the stuff myself, and I don't want to take inventory risk. And what Printful did in a really brilliant way was make it really easy for those entrepreneurs to focus their energy on designing products that realize their vision and then marketing those products online, whether they were doing it through their social channels or other ways. And Printful did basically everything else. We made it easy for them to design. We gave them a platform. We then did all the production and all the fulfillment for them. And so they could focus on their concept and building the business, and we would provide their supply chain for them. Then the sort of next big stage of evolution is, and this all predates me, Printful sort of increasingly saw pretty big names showing up in the customer list, streaming services, music studios, things like that. And dug into it a little bit more and realized that those customers were trying to solve a different problem with a same solution. So to give you an example, if you're a big streaming service, you release 
maybe hundreds of shows in a year. Each one of those shows may be popular, it may not. And within each show, you might have a bunch of characters that might be popular or might not. In the traditional model, what they would do is they'd pick five of those shows. They'd produce a whole bunch of inventory and they'd get it wrong 100% of the time. They'd either underproduce what became a super popular show and run out of inventory and miss a bunch of demand, or they'd overproduce for a show that didn't become popular, and then they'd be sitting on a bunch of inventory that they'd have to write off and send a landfill. Both are bad outcomes. And so by coming to Printful, we gave them the opportunity essentially to test into a market, to find where their demand was going to be, and then to fill that demand as it showed up. So you get much more efficient supply-demand matching, and you get a really broad selection of product, which their customer wanted. So that led to a whole enterprise business that we now run with a, a bunch of pretty big name customers. And so we're really privileged to work with both of those. But then in addition to that, we have a number of really interesting partnerships, like the one that Stephen described. And for, uh, like, we have a number of print shops that work with us. And I think what happens there is much of what shops do, they serve really well already. Large volumes, uh, often episodic orders where somebody will get an order for, you know, a thousand shirts of a certain type with pretty certain demand for those. And they've got the, the machinery and the operations and they know how to do that well. But then there's some use cases that where they don't have as good a solution, many of which just went unmet for a long period of time. But Printful, a partnership with Printful now allows them to meet that demand. So you can think about constant availability. It's one thing to get one order for 500 shirts, but what happens when somebody wants five more a month later? Typically, that order doesn't get fulfilled. But with us, you can have constant availability. No minimums. So somebody shows up and says, hey, I want to do 50 shirts. Well, I don't really want to do 50 shirts. But with us, no problem. You can do one. You can do three. That then leads to testing as well and sampling. So I have a whole bunch of ideas, but I don't know which ones are going to work. Not a problem for us because our unit level is one. And so that allows a shop to have much broader selection, both because they don't have minimum order quantities, but also, like Stephen was saying, they could tap into our different techniques. So if you have screen printing, but you don't have embroidery and you don't have direct to film and you don't have sublimation, you don't have all those other things. In partnership with Printful, you can now offer your clients all of that and just to produce the pieces that you want. And you guys do everything in house or most of this that you we do. Have a, we have a small number of partnerships for some things. So like, for instance, we've got a we do um, on demand shoes. We don't produce those shoes ourselves. But the vast majority of our product, we do ourselves and we're vertically integrated. And so the advantage of that is, you know, think of those small merchants. They come to our site and they do the design of their products with our technology. That same technology stack drives that product all the way through fulfillment to the customer's doorstep, which means that our printing machines render it exactly right because the design came from our technology. And so that vertical integration is one of the things that allows us to run very high quality and highly reliably. And, you know, for those listening, there are solutions out there. You know, you can go on, on Shopify and look in the app store. There are platforms that connect to other on-demand decorators, but that's not vertically integrated. And you're kind of putting your trust into someone um, with you guys. It's your own equipment, your own machinery. Um but I also think what's interesting is it's your own community. Um, I don't know if, if y'all know this, but um, Cricket is like a several billion dollar business. 
because of the Facebook groups and because they have you know, cricket moms and and people that love their crickets and it's this creator community. You guys also have a huge Pritful community, like 20 some thousand users in a Facebook group and you know, you're teaching them how to be entrepreneurs. Um, and I think that's the commitment to the education that's really interesting as you grow with, with your clientele. I am curious though, Alex, screen printers, we're traditionalists. We don't like DTG, you know, we're always going to knock it. Is it in our heads? Is it, are, are we just biased? Um, because that's the first thing that people say is, oh, they just run, you know, court, they run Corneats, but none of us can ever afford them. <laughs> you know, oh, Alex, uh, you also mentioned well, direct to film too, which would be interesting. Or direct to, to film, right? Hear, uh, hear and, and so here. we, we as screen printers, we resent DTG, right? And how, how, how do you see it, especially maybe from a non-biased view of not knowing the industry? It, it is interesting to come into an industry where there are very strongly held beliefs, right? Because part of what I am lucky to be able to do is go in and develop my own and sort of, in a way, arbitrate for myself between the two. And I think that, you know, one of the knocks on DTG is just quality compared to screen print. And my sense is that the quality gap has been reduced very significantly. It's still there. Um, especially for some prints. It depends a lot on what you're printing. Um, but what we find in our customer base is um, some really care about the difference, either because they have their own preconceived notion. So they'll say, well, this has to be screen print. Or because like when we work with a big streaming service, they'll sample everything. And we can give them samples across different treatments. Here's what a screen print would look like. Here's what a DTG would look like. Here's what DTF would look like. And they can compare them side by side. But the reality is the vast majority of customers will never hold up two shirts next to each other that are printed two different ways and compare them. Doesn't happen because they only order one and it either comes off a DTG machine or it comes off of screen print. And so then I think the question is, how good are we at matching the product to the technique? You know, some will only, like we have creators who insist on DTF. It's the only thing they want to do. Fine, do a DTF. We have big companies that print, you know, corporate merch. They want embroidery because it elevates the look. That's fine. And we have some that um, don't know or don't care between the two. And for those, I think you need to have a minimum threshold that sort of meets people's expectations. And here's why the gap between screen print and DTG closing quite significantly over the last five years or 10 years is so important. We run the latest and greatest technology in printing. And if you look at what's coming off our machines now next to a screen printer, like the two of you will probably recognize the differences. Your average customer, much less so. And your average customer will look at it and say, that's just a great shirt. And so I think at this point, um, my belief is as long as we're thoughtful about helping our clients match what are especially edge cases, hey, for this one, you should really do it this way or that way. The vast majority of what we produce, I think, is satisfying our clients. And I can say that confidently because we work with some very big enterprise clients, streaming services and others who are happy with the quality of this one. And that's been a hot topic in our industry of, of print shops converting to DTF where, you know, we're, if it's two colors or more for 50 pieces, we're all using transfers. We're all heat pressing a lot more. Um, Bruce even has a little heat press behind him and he'll do some stuff uh, for his wife's little business. Um, I was going to kind of ask, like, you're probably one of the first professional CEOs that I've gotten to interact with. And I use the word professional CEO because you're running a global company. I think 
I don't know how many employees y'all have, but what well, says uh, revenue here a year ish ago, 289 million. I don't have the latest press release, but yeah, but, and your headquarters is in Riga. You're in the United States. There's 13 or 14 warehouse distribution centers. What was that transition for you to like become a professional CEO? Yeah. Cause like, I don't know. Um, so I think that's super interesting. One, one clarification for your listeners. Um, so Riga is the capital of Latvia. If you haven't been to Latvia, you should go. It's an amazing city. It's an amazing country. And Printful grew up with one foot in the U.S. and one foot in Latvia. So it's a U.S.-based company. We were founded in the U.S., but our founder is Latvian and, and had a great team that he could build in both geographies. And so we have this really cool, you know, people talk about being a digitally native company. We are a internationally native company. Like we started as an international business. And today we have a pretty big European business and a pretty big U.S. business. And we grew up that way, which is really cool. And I think one of the reasons that Printful has been successful in both geographies. Um, but your question was more about sort of, um, you know, stepping into CEO of a company like that. And, you know, in a lot of ways, the, the experiences I've had over time have been have prepared me, I hope, well for this opportunity. And I try to bring a fair amount of humility into it because it's it's um, a big undertaking to run a company as successful as Printful with a great track record um, and to make sure that we continue to, to grow really well. Some of the things that I, I really focus on are um, and sort of where I spend my time starts with team. Like it's no one person can successfully guide a company like this in all aspects of its of its business. And so first and foremost for me is making sure that I've got a great team around me so that together we can provide the leadership and the guidance that the rest of our organization needs. Um, we think a lot about um, uh, the strategy of the business and making sure that that's clear to everybody else so that everybody on our team, and it's, you know, our, the numbers aren't public, but it's well over a thousand people, are really clear on, I understand the strategy of the business and I understand what that means for me. Like, I understand how my role makes a difference for this company. It's hard to do that well across a large number of people, but it's super important because if people don't understand their purpose and their mission, it's just not as engaging to come to work and you don't feel as in, uh, sort of significant to the overall business. And so we try really hard to, to make sure that that's clear. And I think if we do that and we keep an eye on who our customer is and how we serve them really well, then we can make the kinds of decisions you need to make to be successful as an overall organization. Do you, you mentioned um, focusing on the customer first. I find that interesting. We talk about this exercise where if you were not in your business today and you came in as a hired CEO into your business, what are the decisions that you would make? Because I think a lot of owners that started the business, you know, you start to let things slide or, yeah, this person's just been here because they've been here for three, four years. And that's just, you know, I don't want to make the tough decision around that. But if you came in and looked from the outside, I think a lot of us would be able to have a lot clearer mind about it. Um, you know, you said mentioned starting with a customer when you come in, looking at that, looking at the team, going to the strategy. Are there any sort of tactical exercises also that you start to do that even a shop owner, a much smaller business could be able to look at their business to start to write the direction and, and say, okay, here are the big decisions I need to start to to make to point this in the, the ship in the right direction? It's a little bit of a tricky question to, to answer uh, holistically outside of any one company, but I do think there are themes. 
and the, the, some of these are going to be familiar to what I just said, but one is team. Like, I think, and you pointed this out, one thing you can do when you're coming in fresh is um, get to know the team and what they're capable of and, and what they're great at um, at one moment in time without the what is often baggage of a long history. And some cases, what you find is there are some folks who have sort of evolved into a role that's not a great fit for them. And if they're repositioned into a different role, they're going to thrive much more. And time can hide some of that uh, slow evolution in the wrong direction. Similarly, there are people who can be empowered to move much faster. And so getting assessment of do we have the right team not for two years ago, not even for today, but do we have the right team for two years from now? That's something that Fresh Eyes, I think, helps helps do. And then the customer piece is super important because it leads directly to strategy. Um, one of the first things that I try to do is get comfortable with the customer myself. So it's not a coincidence that that early on in my tenure, I talked to Stephen and I talked to a lot of other folks like Stephen because I was trying to get a firsthand understanding of what problems are you trying to solve? Like, what is going to make your business super successful? And what do you rely on us to do today? Not the specifics of what we do do, but like, what problem do we solve for you? Because if you can get your head around what problem you're trying to solve, then you can look and say, how well are we doing that? Because like, maybe we're checking the box, but what, what really great, especially product leaders do, like a, like a Steve Jobs, what he does is he thinks about the problem and then he creates an, a solution for it that nobody had imagined before. And part of our job as leaders of companies is to understand the problem so well that we can think about a solution that our customer is not explicitly asking for, but would really value. And that, I think, is part of the job of understanding your market well enough and your customer well enough to understand those needs. And then the job of a CEO is really resource allocation. It's like, if we know what the opportunities are, then are we allocating resources appropriately? And if we need to put more resources on something else, what are we willing to sacrifice to get there? And the trick about prioritization is it's not just saying what's most important. It's about saying what you're willing to sacrifice and what you're willing to not do. And I think that's one of the hardest things because the temptation is always to just do more. But like you got to fund the more and you fund the more by de-emphasizing other things. That's powerful. Alex, when you wake up every day, like I have numbers that I check every morning. Um, they're like the four, you know, the four buttons and tabs that I open up and look at. Um, to get, Can you like, say which morning. ones you, you check? Like the KPIs? Me? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like I have a Slack channel that's looking at how our schools did the night before. That's like one of the things that I'm literally the first thing that I check and see what were our sales yesterday. Um, and then I look at, uh, we have like a, a thing called sales land that says how much bulk business we did. Um, I look at the support, basically how many tickets are in support. So like, okay, there's a, there's a hundred support requests and I can see, you know, how many are open. And then, um, yeah, that's basic, basically what I, what I look at. Um, that's what I'm, what I'm checking constantly. Um, sorry, I threw, I threw I, you off your question. I was just yeah, curious when you said No, you. but I, I'm, I'm, because I think what's interesting is like, Alex, you were just talking about like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the customer. You're also trying to, you know, also focusing on sales, also like operation. So like, yeah, what what are the levers that you look at uh, or the, the meters that you look at? Every the one that I always wake up to is sales. That's the first thing I check when I open my eyes in the morning. It's a little grim to say, but it's true. Um, and what I'm looking for there is trends by segment and um, secondary to that. But I also look at 
um, product type. So is DTG doing great or not? Is embroidered doing great or not? And so I understand our enterprise business, our SMB business, our direct-to-consumer business, and what products that they're looking at. That's really helpful. You know, honestly, do I need to check it every day? Probably not. It doesn't change that much day to day, but it does change week to week. Um, and then depending on where we are in the year, there may be other things that I'm checking on a daily basis. But at this point, I, I more look at things on a weekly or a monthly basis because the trends don't change that fundamentally. And if something really goes haywire, then like I already have a super talented leader who's ahead of me on it. Right. So I don't expect to find a number and call somebody up and say, by the way, do you know our, our site's down and have the head of engineering be surprised? <laughs> right. Like that's not going to happen. <laughs> not a good call to get. What we do, um, it's like our governance model is you know, we'll set our strategic priorities for a quarter. We have KPIs in every one of our functions. And then on a monthly basis, we'll get together as a, as a leadership group and look at how are we tracking on our priorities and how are our KPIs tracking? And that becomes a problem solving session. And that's for things that are not like moment to moment emergencies. If there's a moment to moment emergency, we deal it right then. And the leader will be the one who raises the flag and we all jump on it and solve the problem. But that sort of weekly and, and really more monthly cadence is the thing that leads to like the bigger adjustments and strategy. How is that meeting scheduled? I'm interested to dive more into like that monthly, you know, like who's really in it? Is it just people that report directly to you? And then how long is something like that to go through <laughs> a business of your guys' size? And, and like, and then I think the third part uh, is the problems of it, right? I, I'm assuming, okay, this KPI is not good, but how deep are we really going to go into it in this meeting? Or is that scheduled somewhere yeah. else? So. um I am happy to nerd out on this topic. So let me give so you, give us the transcripts and then the you can take me deeper if you want. Basically, the way it works for us is we have um, a business segment. So like take our um, our SMB, small, medium-sized business. We have that as a segment. That team leader will show up and say, hey, for our segment, there's, there's three pages. One page is a one-page summary that says, here are wins. Here are losses, like things that here's what went well, here's what didn't go well, here's what we learned, here are big opportunities, here are big challenges, and here's where we need help. That's all on one page. So there's like four or five bullets for each one. Page number two is here are our KPIs. And those like what the KPIs are don't change month to month, but the numbers do. So you can see trends. And then the third page is we use a structure called OKRs, which is a, a fairly typical technology structure for setting strategies. And we and it's the OKR update. So here are the OKRs we set at the beginning of the quarter. Here's how we're doing on each one. Red, yellow, green for whether we're going to hit it at the end of the quarter or not. So each segment shows up with that set of three slides and each function shows up with a set of slides. So like our sales team does, our marketing team does, our product team does. And so that creates the structure for each conversation. Then the other piece that I think is really important is we don't present anything. The assumption is everybody reads the slides in advance. Questions, we then collect all the questions and the leader of each group then sequences those questions. So the head of SMB will look through what might be 50 questions and says, you know what? 15 matter that we're really gonna talk about. And we go straight to conversation around who needs to know what and how are we gonna make this better? And so 
If done well, it's a real problem solving conversation. It's not a readout. And then the last thing, just to, to answer one other question you had is the participants of the meeting are whoever you need to be able to make decisions at the moment. What you want to avoid is a whole lot of takeaway, like this group will meet about this, this group will meet about that. Like inevitably you get some of them, but when the meeting is right, it's like these four people need to have input. We understand the input. We have a clear decision maker. Decision is made. We move on to the next. So Alex, you talked about OKRs. That's called like objective key results. Um, and there's a book, uh, I think it's Andrew Grove's high output management that really talks about it. This is similar to like traction as how did you learn this framework? Was that at Wayfair? Did you introduce this? Um, can you talk a little bit? Because it almost like it's almost like you're you're an NFL coach and you've got the way you kind of run this ship. Yeah. Talk about how how you actually like teach everyone to to flow like this. Yeah. Um, so I started using uh, OKRs at Wayfair, and then brought that same structure to Printful. Um, one interesting thing for me is the team at Printful picked it up a lot faster than the team at Wayfair. And like, you know, we had a kick-ass team at Wayfair, super, super talented people. But for whatever reason, it clicked very quickly at Printful. Like they recognized the purpose. I think people value the transparency. And it, in addition to helping stay focused on what's most important, the other thing is it's a great coordination tool. So that if you see like, Stephen, if we're working together and you have a key result that you're trying to drive that depends on me, it's a really good way of making that clear. So I can look at it and say, well, hey, for me to help Stephen enough for him to achieve mine, I actually can't do one of mine. And so early in the quarter, you can make those trade-off decisions instead of finding out at the end of the quarter, like, hey, if we didn't talk about it and so neither got done, right? And so the team clicked into it really quickly um, and it's been a pretty effective tool. The other thing I'd say for your listeners is like, Yes, you read the book. It's a good book. You can find summaries of OKRs and good articles online in, in like five pages. It's pretty clear what the purpose is and how to do it decently well. That's awesome. Um, okay, I want to switch gears a little bit. One of the hot topics in our printing industry is having an exit plan or thinking about your future as a, as a business. I think a lot of shop owners get into the industry by accident, realize they're there, uh, are not professional CEOs, run these companies for 15, 20, 30 years, come to work every day, print amazing merch. And then it's like, what am I going to do after this? Or what's my retirement strategy? Or, you know, all those things. And as Bruce and I have been in the industry for almost over a decade, what we're seeing is those conversations are happening more and more every day. Now, I know um, Printful acquired like Snow Commerce, um, which isn't necessarily a printing company, but bought bought a business. Um, and as you explained, you know, like Printful might grow by buying companies. How might a print shop owner think about making their business sellable, right? Like, could you could you shed a little bit of light of what you do and what you look for and, and things like that? Yeah. So what I can let me let me talk a little bit about what we look for in acquisition candidates because we do you know it's uh, it's part of our strategy to think about how can we make Printful bigger by finding complementary businesses. And then I can maybe reflect a little bit on what that might, uh, how that might translate to a print shop. So the first thing that we think about, especially when, you know, when we're looking at a business that will integrate and run together is cultural fit. And if we don't find good cultural fit, nothing else matters. It's a walk away because it turns out bringing two organizations together, even if conceptually it makes a lot of sense on paper, 
If the cultural fit's not there, it's not going to work and it's going to destroy a ton of value. And those two businesses are better off on their own. And so we always start there. Um, then we start thinking about criteria that make something attractive. Um, growth, like top line growth and profitability are both important. And what you'll find is that that's more important to some companies than others. Like some acquirers just care about growth and they figure we'll figure out profitability later. Others are just looking at profitability and like it's not a lot of top line growth. They don't really care. At Printful, we're looking for both. Um, the next is scale. So it's um, Printful is a pretty big business. If we go acquire a company that's doing $500,000 in revenue, candidly, it's just not worth uh, energy to do it. It just takes a certain amount of time and energy and focus to acquire a business. And so for uh, it's got to have some amount of scale for us to to uh, to acquire it. And there's not like a magic number, but it's a it's a lens that we look through. Um, the next one we think about is complementary capabilities. So we want to believe that Printful plus this other company is more than one plus one equals two. Like there's got to be some reason to believe what the Printful somehow helps the other company or that the other company helps Printful be even better than we are today. And then the last thing I'd say is something unique and defensible that often is a technology capability, but we love it when we look at a company and say, wow, nobody else in the industry does that. It would be really hard for us or somebody else to build it. That gives us confidence that that business and what we're buying is going to have long-term value. And so we look for that special sauce and whatever flavor that might be. It's usually technology, but not always technology. So those are some of the things that we think about when we're looking at acquiring business. When it comes to like a traditional print shop, um, we and we've looked at some. One thing that's a little tricky is the technology often isn't differentiated. Like the, the printing technology itself is similar. The technology that runs it is similar. And so that's often not that's not enough for us. What has piqued our interest before is relationships, like enduring uh, demand that that company is able to fulfill in a unique way. And those relationships are really valuable. But I think like if you're a print shop thinking about what's your exit, getting to a certain amount of scale, running your business really well, and being able to demonstrate that the demand to your business is going to endure for specific reasons, those are all really valuable. Bruce, you went through this uh, before Printabo was acquired. What was that process like for you? I mean, some of the stuff that Alex Alex just talked about, what resonates? As far as making the company valuable, I mean, I think there's a couple different, we'll call exit strategies that we see in the space. One is what you're just saying, like just retiring. And so it may be passing it down to like a son or a daughter or, you know, uh, merging with another shop nearby. Um, one could be, yes, trying to maximize value. I mean, I think I was tr attempting to be more in that boat, but didn't fully understand it, if I'm honest. Like, um, yeah, I think like there's some other things that I've, I've witnessed is, uh, just general growth, you know, how quickly is the company growing or, um, management team? Like, can someone step in and really be able to manage this company without having to do any crazy, you know, lifting? And, uh, we have to hire the whole team. And, um, like, for example, if the company was doing super well, but there was a one, it was like one or two people managing the company, 
a, a bit of a risk, right? We can't get rid of that that uh, key man um, issue there. Um, and then I think the other one is the the uh, founder and kind of what they want to do. We've even looked at some companies and and you know, if they're in a different country, for example, and they don't want to be around, well, how are you going to manage that company? Um, or if they're in a totally different space and you have to learn it, how are you going to learn it if the management team, aka really the, the owner, just steps aside? Um, so anyway, it seems like there's a lot of those factors. And it's interesting because of, of what you talk about, Alex, too. And I, and I uh, also see the size component, too, I think is the last part. So, you know, you talked about a business doing 500k doesn't necessarily make any sense. Let's say a shop's doing five million; they're looking to bring on a smaller business. If they're doing a hundred thousand in sales, again, doesn't even make sense for them. Sort of the scale down of that with lawyers or with just the time to do some due diligence, with the time to to merge the companies and so on. I do find it interesting just because they're of the different types of exit strategies or people falling into exits. Is it is it concerning maybe to both of you? So this is funny because like Bruce, when you were getting acquired, I'm like, when are they going to find out you have a bobblehead of yourself and the whole community looks at you as a celebrity? Like, is that going to be a problem in diligence where they're like, what do we do? You know, but that's interesting, right? Um, because Bruce, like, you are the face of Printavo, and if someone's you know potential acquirers, like, you might go with them, you might not go with them. What's going to happen if if Bruce isn't there? Right, Alex. How uh, when you look at a company, do you v- does it increase or decrease with value with how attached the owner is to the company or how dependent it is? Like, what do you, what do you look at there? I, I think the way Bruce talked about it is is right. Like, it it really depends on what the rest of the leadership team around that founder looks like. Like, um, if if you feel like the rest of the leadership team is really strong. And the founder has a specific role, but that role, you know, if the founder decided that they wanted to retire the next month, you know, the fabric of the company was still going to be strong, then it's a little bit less significant. But we've looked at businesses where the founder is making every single big decision in the company. That's a lot of key man risk, right? Um, and so, we, like, we are pretty conscious of that. Uh, that said, we love it when the founder wants to come with a business. Like, it is. There's nobody in business I respect more than a, a founder who's built a business by himself or herself and is running it successfully. And I think that is super, super hard to do. And so when you have somebody who wants to sell their business but stay with it and continue to grow it, and they're coming in this case to Printful saying like, hey, you can you can give us something that we don't have, whether that's financial resources or something else. And by doing that, I can go double the size of my business. Those are sort of my favorite. Alex, is there uh, any one thing I've done is tried to open source some of our data trends that we see from order volume and payments flow and everything. Um, so shops can use that to see different trends of you know the slow periods or high periods and so on to prepare. Are there any trends that you're seeing? Because you have a much bigger kind of macro uh, feel of of ecom. And maybe this is a bit loaded of a question because I don't know if you'd necessarily say, yeah, I mean, things are looking a little scary or not, but, um, you know, is there anything interesting that you're seeing that, especially after the bullwhip effect from all the COVID, you know, the spike in 21, 22, sort of maybe the evening out or cool down of 23? 
I mean, I'm happy to reflect on it at the same time. I, I'm asking myself that question every day, right? Like, and I'm, I don't pretend to be a macroeconomist or somebody who knows the space super, super well. Like, I think the big swings that you're talking about absolutely feel right. Like COVID was an insane disruption on the positive side. And then you got the sort of uh, echo after that, which was hard, I think, on a lot of companies, especially companies that built up capacity thinking that COVID demand was never going to go away, which it clearly did. Um, I'm still pretty uh, cautious about the economy as we go into 24. Like, I don't see a clear reason to believe that this is going to be a big boom year. I mean, obviously, I hope it is. But, um, you know, I we uh, the second half of last year was a good was a good half. We were pleased with it. Um, but as we planned for this year, we, we planned with some amount of caution so that if something takes off, we can react very quickly to it. So I don't feel like our upside is limited in any way. Um, but we are pretty careful about the downside scenario. Alex, lastly, what, uh, you know, you're cooling down after dinner. What, what are you thinking about normally? I think a lot of us fair, maybe, um, uh, there's the funny story of you chasing, uh, the straws with the cups like years ago. I remember and you were worried about that or flights or, you know, some goofy stuff with your shop. What, how, what do you think about with Printful that keeps you up? Specific to the business. We get personal, but let's keep it the business. Well, no, I mean, I didn't know what like, <laughs> worry about my daughter's like math test or something else, which I do worry about. But, um, no, I mean, in, in the sort of quiet moments, where it's less about sort of what are we going to do today or what are we going to do next week? What I'm mostly focused on is where's like, what are the biggest opportunities for innovation and growth? Like, I, I think there is a ton of opportunity in this space. Um, I feel very, very privileged to be at Printful because I think it's a company that has innovated and has the capacity to innovate and the resources to innovate. And so what I spend time thinking about is like, what have we not thought of yet? What have we not imagined yet? Whether it's a different way to serve a current customer or a way to access a new customer set or a new way to use technology to sort of do something fundamentally different. Though that's the stuff that I noodle on the most and I find the most exciting. I mean, it's, it's frustrating because the insights don't come frequently. If they did, you would have already done them. Um, but, but that's, that's the piece that's super exciting for the medium to long term. We talked to a shop owner earlier this week. <clears throat> she tries to take off one day every other week to just like, we call it staring at the wall, but yeah, to do this, to, to give yourself time to actually think. Yeah. And in that, in that Bezos Friedman podcast recently, that's what Jeff Bezos said is like, I give myself time to wander um, and daydream, you know, yeah. and, and prioritize that. All right, Alex, you've been in the industry for a year and a half. Um, favorite shirt. I have a favorite. Bruce has a favorite. Uh, what's your brand? What's your, what are you wearing? What's your go-to? This is my standard Printful hoodie. I love it. It's a great garment, super comfortable. I love the brand. I'm super excited to be at Printful. So like, honestly, I mean, it's a little bit of a boring answer, but if you ask me my, my favorite piece of apparel, I'm wearing it. Are you allowed to say the brand? It's our own. Oh, it's your own. Oh, it's your own. Yeah. Sweet. Well, if you ever come out with a tie-dye hoodie, I might sport it, but <laughs> I, uh, I still rock the independent. Bruce is an AS color guy, um, but uh, we, you know, that can change. Cool. Well, Alex, this was incredible. Thank you. Um, and I'm sure shop owners listening to this, you know, uh, feel free to hit me up if 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 you think that Printful might might help you out. I'm happy to make some introductions and stuff there too. But Alex, I think. 
you know, it's pretty inspiring. Um, we don't have very many leaders of, of, you know, of your experience and we would love as an industry for you to for, interact with us more. Cause this is super cool. Well, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Right. Alex, appreciate you joining and the transparency. I, I think that's the really the, the big win here. For announcers, we appreciate you guys joining us for another weekly episode of the podcast. We'll see you on the next one. Have a good one. Thanks so much for listening. Hopefully that was informative. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to like. Don't forget to hit the bell for notifications if you enjoyed this video. If you enjoy all the stuff we're putting out, it's really helpful. We love to just be able to see it. That means that we're doing a good job. To subscribe, hit the bell for notifications and hit the like button. And I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.